Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Kia ora everyone, welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Steve Mo speaking, and I'm really glad you could join me as we get the chance to speak with Diane Dukarma. And in this conversation, we talk a lot about what we eat, our health, and have a real focus on migraines. If you've ever suffered from them or you know someone who does, then I think you're really going to enjoy this perspective that she brings. And also make sure to check out the show notes because there's an assessment that you can do that we talk about during the episode. And Deanne has offered to look at every single person's assessment when they do it and provide some input to them. If you enjoy this, then don't forget there's more than 333 other conversations in the back catalog, so you might want to check some of those out as well. If you like it, then why not subscribe and tell one other person about the show? Now let's get straight into this conversation. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Diane Dukarma, the founder of Nectar Health. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and finding out about what you're doing today. Um, but I also love to find about people's life journeys and what led them to do what they do today. So in your case, could we jump in a time machine and go back to when you were, say, four or five years old? What was life like for you and where were you living? Oh, when I was four to five years old, I was um, living in Brussels, which is my hometown. Uh, my mother tongue's French, so we were three sisters. And I was the sick one, you know, one of those who has the purple lips in the swimming pool, who can't go to school because she has an ear infection, then she has a bronchitis, then she has a bronchonemia. Uh, the one where dad and mom say, oh, it's your DNA, no, it's your DNA, and you're in the middle and saying, oh, thank you, it's my body. So, um, yeah, um, that that is how I remember being a child. Yeah. Otherwise, happy, but, you know, sick a lot. And describe that city, because I actually haven't visited before. What's it like? Or when you were young, what was it like? Um, you know, it's a city that... Uh, my parents have had very little means, so I, I remember doing everything walking. Um, and so everything was arranged that we could walk to school, walk to uh, do grocery shopping, etc. My parents were sharing a car and my dad needed it for work. And um, so I remember lots of walks, large um, path walks. And then I remember uh, the garden. We had at the end of the garden, like this amazing cherry tree. Uh, which would be so lush in summer and we would my little sister and I in particular we would go in the tree it would be like a place of heaven where we would just collect these ab abundant cherries um, and spend a bit of time hidden um, together feeling we were taking risks you know just in the garden and what was it like having like two other sisters you said were you the oldest or the youngest or where did you fit um, I was in the middle I was the middle one um, yeah, it was good. It was um, it was good. Lots of uh, chats, lots of two plus one. You know, depending which which is the combination, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So coming through in your like younger years in terms of school and things, what sort of subjects interested you? Um, I was really interested in the body and medicine. I remember when I was a child collecting, um, you know, the newspaper, they were offering these uh, pamphlets on the body. And I remember collating them and asking my parents to buy the newspaper, which was called Le Soir, like the evening. Um, and, uh, and I remember putting them in, a, in one of those, you know, classes, uh, like, a, you know, like a folder and, and collating them. Um, but that being said, I had lots of interest. Um, I, uh, I, I, later in the years, I said to my parents, I either wanted to be a hairdresser, which I have become, you know, I'm the hairdresser of my, my, my son and my, my husband and my daughter, um, or the prime minister, which, you know, <laughs> not yet, but I'm not sure that is something I desire anymore. That's interesting. Yeah. It's, um, so growing up then in that environment, um, I guess, because it is quite an interesting city, isn't it? It's quite international. Yes, very. In terms of European Union and and different yeah. things, was that something that was on your radar? Like, were you aware uh, that it was yeah. that sort of a place? Yeah, interesting. Uh, no, I don't think I was aware, but I could hear a lot of languages being spoken. 
Um, and so today I speak seven, and I think the aptitude to learn languages came from the fact of walking in the street and hearing different ones. Mm. Um, I think the taste for living abroad came much later when I was uh, 14 to 16. My family and I, we went to live in London. And then I was like, whoa, the world's so much bigger, it's so cool. Uh, forget about the doctor idea, which I was back on. Um, I'm going to become a businesswoman and travel around the world. There's so much to discover, and I don't want to be confined to a single place. Mm. Um, and so I realized how small actually Brussels was. Um, yeah. And that the languages, did that start at a young age, learning multiple languages? Not did I hear so right? Not, you said you speak seven? Not uh, Yes. So like Dutch, you, so mother tongue was French, then Dutch, you have to sort of learn it at school. But this is where it stopped until until we moved to London. And suddenly we had the needs to learn English, which uh, happened fairly fast. And I was when I was there, um, at, at actually at the French Lycée in South Kensington, um, I, there was no Dutch. So I had then to add a new language, which then turned out to be German because it was the closest to Dutch and uh, probably a useful one. Um, and, uh, and that went fairly fast. And I spent a few summers in Heidelberg to learn more German. And I thought it was quite easy. Then I later on went to Costa Rica and I learned Spanish within three weeks. And then I thought, oh, this is cool. You know, I'll go to Italy and learn Italian. By that time, I thought things were confused in my head because, you know, you know, Dutch and German and Italian and Spanish are slightly too similar. Um, and by then I had also started to learn Mandarin, which felt fun. Right. So quite a few. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think the exposure comes back to the early years. Yeah, and that's what allows your brain to dissect the syllabus. Now that I'm reading more about the brain and how it works, it seems that this is, is sort of what made the difference. I think you're right. I think it does have something to do with even knowing that it's possible to learn the other language, which I yeah. know sounds a little bit strange. But yeah. when I was young, we lived in Chile in South America. Mm -hmm. So I learned to speak Spanish as mm -hmm. an 11-year-old, 12-year-old. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. because I could speak English and Spanish. Mm -hmm. Then when a little bit later, when I moved to Japan, it kind of wasn't that big a yeah. step to say, well, yeah. I might as well learn Japanese. I'm living in Japan, yeah. you know? So it sounds really odd, doesn't it? Yeah. That I would be able to speak English, Spanish, and Japanese, yeah. but then yeah. once you've learned one, it's like, well, yeah, I'll I learn can. another. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember vividly one of my uncles, um, he was able to speak seven, one of which was Hebrew, like really cool. And, I thought as a child, this was phenomenal. And so sometimes my one of my sisters and I, we would fake talk a different language. So we would talk stuff, but we were faking it was Spanish. Or, so we were just, you know, making intonations. Yeah. And living in that world of possibility. Yeah. And just let's talk about this just for a second, because language fascinates me. And what fascinates me is the way that we think. Yeah. And to what extent does language alter maybe the way we look at the world have yeah. you got any thoughts on that like speaking so many languages you've seen massive. different approaches massive massive because what really struck me is i i started to learn mandarin which was the last one although i maybe i'm gonna start maori let's see but uh, i i i learned uh mandarin i started around age i don't know 21 and it really struck me how different the logic was. So there was a certain logic, you know, to French, Spanish, and Italian, you could feel it had the same roots and um, Dutch, German, and to some extent, English had similar roots. But both of all of these six languages, when you designate something, it means that something. And then they each would have, you know, their, their um, uh, expressions like pura vida in 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 Costa, you know in Costa Rica or things that you wouldn't be able to translate, um, but they would still you know when you say a it means a and when you say b it means b. When I started to learn Mandarin, um, a didn't mean a, um, and that was like a whole new uh, way of thinking that was opening to me which um, actually really relates to what I do. You, you might be poking by um, coincidence, but really relates to what I do. Um, in Chinese, a liver doesn't mean liver. It means the system, which links to many other organs than the liver. The liver doesn't work on its own. And so it really um, 
interests me how the language in this case, in the case of medicine, allows for a whole other universe to express itself. Mm. Yeah, I think that we could easily talk for this for hours because I love it. The um the whole idea that the language is like the architecture. Yes. And that you can build different things with different language and different vocabulary. And yes. I think two points. The first one is that knowing that an object or something is called, you know, let's say bread, you know, yes. this thing is called bread in my native language, but it's also called pan in Spanish. Yes. It's the same thing, but it has a different name. I think it does open your mind to the idea of more possibilities, you know, like there's different conceptions of the world beyond yeah. one linear way of thinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I know for me, when I went to Japan, kind of similar to Chinese, I think there's mm -hmm. just, it's just so different to mm -hmm. the English way of expressing things. Mm -hmm. um, but within Japan, they have a very formal approach and how you talk, it's called keigo. So you mm -hmm. talk to your boss in a certain way, using a certain way or certain yeah. Uh, verbs yeah. whereas if you're feeding the dog you talk to the dog differently you know like so the point is it's a very hierarchical society and yes. that's mirrored in the language itself yes. so it's like the culture yes. the yes. language it's so intertwined yes. it's yes. really fascinating to me yes similar it's funny similar to french similar to spanish in costa rica but not to spanish in spain so it's quite it's quite yeah fascinating how how these things play out yeah absolutely yeah yeah that's great so um you mentioned before that the body and health even interested you at a young age i'm always curious about that because what you're doing today is now kind of an intersection point um yeah tell me a little bit more about that young experiences of of health and the body what what was it that was interesting to you? Well, it was really frustrating. I think, you, you know, I, um, frustrating because my my brain would say yes, or I would want to do something and my body would say no, um, you cannot, you're not allowed, you, you're too weak, you cannot. And so that was like, for me, it was a massive level of frustration of, you know, going a lot to the doctors. And I come from a family of doctors, Western doctors, and sort of, you know, taking medications and 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 that being it, right? And so, so like that frustration, and then at the same time, coupled with a curiosity of why things work a certain way inside the body. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting what it is that spurs us to get interest, isn't it? So coming through into high school, did that continue, or what? What were you? What sort of subjects did you enjoy in your high school years? Mm, well, I did quite a lot of science. I did a lot of maths. I was doing the stuff that was hard. I liked to be challenged. Um, yeah, I like a good challenge. Um, so I was going towards the things that were a bit harder, but almost by design, which doesn't make sense, <clears throat> I think, in <laughs> retrospective. You know, like, I think when I was a child, I, for me, um, equitability really mattered. Um, you know, I couldn't understand that we were living in a capitalistic world and not in a communist, communist world. And I, I think there were ideologies that I had as a kid that were very strong. But the way I was raised, why you need to earn your bread, you need to earn your life, you know, life is hard. Um, you need to go at things, you need to be resilient, you need to study, you need to do your best. And so there was a lot of um, competitive spirits uh, and sort of part of that equitability and kindness was sort of brushed on the side and said, hey, you know what, it's nice to be nice, but, you know, you first need to be strong in order to be nice. Um, and so that's um, that together combined with that experience in, in London uh, made me go for um, studies in business. Um, and so I, I, I went back to Belgium and I studied um, at Solvay, which um, is a very reputable um, um, university. Oh, that's great. And the topic then, was it on the, the subject of business and yeah. entrepreneurship and things? Or Well, it was actually a really interesting degree. It was... Um, if you will be helping people become translators. So Solve is a chemistry company and okay. the people in charge of that company thought that the business people ought to understand science. 
And so they put together a degree where you would have, for the first two years, a lot of classes of, of, of chemistry, of physics, of mathematics, of statistics, like really hardcore of technology. And then you would overlay three years of pure business. And so um, it had a very, I mean, an extremely solid reputation in Belgium, uh, being qualified as, you know, the, the top curriculum someone could do at the time. But then they struggled with their own identity because they wouldn't fit anywhere. And so they tried to retrofit their classes to, 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 to attain some scores and some ranking, which to some extent put them backwards because then it became sort of a me too a me too business school. I mean, if I may say with a lot of kindness towards the people who led it, I think the intent initially was superb and extremely advanced for its age, like of having STEM overlaid with business. It was quite, quite phenomenal. Um, and then it, then it, it tried to play in similar fields as the other ones. So it was, yeah, a, a, a combo university, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And did you know what, career that would take you to or what area you wanted to get into no I didn't quite know and to this day I'm surprised by some of the classes I've learned a lot from for example we had uh, IT and so I learned to do Java Java and JavaScript as languages and I never thought it may or may not you know help me and it helps me so much now um, um, but going into it I didn't know like I um you know, in Belgium, I was in a microcosm where it was more about health and well-being and, you know, being kind to others. And then you evolve and you're like, oh, the world's bigger. It has more possibilities. I, I first need to learn and explore before I settle on anything. And so um, and so I did those studies. I quite enjoyed them. I mean, they were really intense, but it was nice. And then I joined McKinsey. Um, because I love strategy and I thought it would be a nice way to um, to get into it and not wait too many years before that. Yeah. And all through this time, because obviously we're here in New Zealand now, was yeah. was international like a life that would take you overseas? Was that on your horizon? Were you oh, absolutely. thinking about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was really curious. I was curious about other languages, back to the earlier conversation, other languages, other ways to... Um, talk other ways to think. Um, I felt I was um, I was really ha having a very small perspective on the world, and I wanted to have a much larger one. And so it was a very big appeal for me um, to um, to work and work abroad with McKinsey. And so I, I worked across Europe and then South Africa, um, the U.S. a bit in Dubai, um, and then China for five years. And among all places, there was a need for 18 months in um, New Zealand. And that's how we landed here seven years ago, sort of loved it and, and are still here. Wow. So just stepping back from that, because yeah. I want to get to how you ended up in New Zealand. Yeah. Can you describe a little bit about McKinsey and, and what it is for those who aren't familiar? Uh, yes. So um, it's a strategic consulting company. So if you think of it, it's a doctor for companies. Um um, and so if two companies want to merge together or they want to expand into a new market or they need to do a product launch, um, you know, McKinsey has a worldwide expertise to do these things and we'll put together an assemblage of experts and be able to help at speed and scale um, internationally. And what was that like? Just, uh, you know, not into details of any specific project, but what was it like to be asked to come in and support a company that had a strategic need or something. And I presume you didn't know a huge amount about them. You yeah. come in, you get the data, you present yeah. the report. I loved the learning aspect of it. Um, like you'd learn so much so fast. It was super intense. I also loved my colleagues. I think I was surrounded by people who were really brilliant in their own domain. Um, some doctors, funny enough, who had you know studied medicine for a long time, thought it was not their thing and then joined uh, later. They thought either MBA or this. So like there was a really wide variety. There were lawyers as well um, who practiced law for some time, didn't love it necessarily. It was a great school of business for people to get into. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, very varied, um, a lot of hard work. Uh, I would work anywhere from 8 to 11 or midnight. Like that would be the norm, like especially when I was in China. 
Um, I would I, I remember having worked one day from nine to five, just the other five, uh, which was intense. So I remember, yeah, it being very intense, but very happy. Um, I was I was learning and I was curious, and it was a crash course into companies, how they're structured, what makes them strong, what makes them weak. Um, and gosh, I thought, you know, I don't even know how I put a, a foot in an elevator or I put my money in the bank. People don't always know what their job is, and it's quite it's quite scary. Mm. And what was the approach of a company like McKinsey? Like, was there an ethos or a theme that would come through in how you're supporting clients? Because it's um, one of those names that yeah. I hear from time to time, like, mm-hmm. oh, there's this infograph from McKinsey on life cycles of a deal or something, you know, like it, it seems to have had outsized influence beyond the clients yeah. that they help. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a major influence. Um, I think there was one thing that really struck me and is still with me is client first. Like any, you know, anything comes after your client. Um, and when it comes to work, administrative tasks or anything's um, around that you can and be able to serve your client the best you can. There was another theme around obligation to descent. So if, even if you're very junior, um, and you disagree with something, you have an obligation to say what you think is. Um, and I think those two things really st- stuck with me. Um, there was no one thing I did not like is there was no uh, overall um, obliged moral compass, meaning if you at the time back in the days, if you wanted to serve the tobacco industry, you could. And if you did want not want to, you could abstain. But there was no, is this a good industry or a bad industry? Therefore, are we going to serve them or not? There was not no judgment like that, which I think in 2022, like starts to change a little bit or, you know, from external forces. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Just as we're talking, we're doing this by Zoom. So I just pulled it up and it's interesting to look at their website and just see some of the things that they're involved in. And uh, the front page here is a new book, which they've come out with called Deliberate Calm how to learn and lead in a volatile world. So I can imagine those sorts of themes would come out through the research and support they're doing of companies, right? Yeah. 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 So, you you know, you've got a, a global life here. <laughs> you've, yeah. you've worked yeah. in Europe. You, you're talking about the Middle East. You're talking about China. How did New Zealand come on your radar as, as a place to uh, be moving to? Um, so we, um, so we, we, we were seeking to travel. So by we is my husband. So I met my husband at uh, university. We went to the same exchange program in Mexico. Um, and that's how we met. And we both ended up working there. Uh, and so we were together in Europe, in South Africa, in the U S in China, in China, we had the pleasure to have two children, uh, which was great. It was wonderful. Um, and, um, and, and our son had a bit of respiratory issues. Um, he was one of those, just like me, I think, you know, your infection, bronchitis, <laughs> bronchopneumonia, no, maybe not that one, but, you know, quite recurring sort of mucus um, uh, and, and throat and, and lung infections. Um, and so we thought, hey, you know what, um, it's maybe time that we do something about where we live. Um, because of the pollution. We liked China a lot. It was a lot of fun. It was Shanghai, 2010 to 2015, amazing years. But with small children, it's a lot more challenging, um, especially as there was a lot of pollution. So we thought we need to to go away. And uh, there was this opportunity to just come to New Zealand for 18 months and do sort of a lung cleans. And we thought, oh, that sounds that sounds great. We're, we're just going to jump on that occasion. And when we arrived, it had that, you know, that beautiful Anglo-Saxon vibe, you know, uh, mixed with a European vibe and an Asian one. And so it just, you know, and, and the, the indigenous um, wisdom. And so we thought, wow, that's a, just a perfect combination. Just like, like a bit of the Latin crazy, you know, warmth, but aside right. of that, it's just perfect. There's so much nature. And so we loved it beyond um, any expectation. And, um, and so we stayed now, it's been seven years. Wow. And growing up, like, had you known about New Zealand? Was it on your radar? Or... Barely, barely. I know, I knew it was the, it was called the, the uh, most extreme dreams of the travelers. So th- that's how people pictured it. It was like, the, if you like to travel, this is your biggest dream as New Zealand. But that's all I, 
sort of new. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. So I'd love to learn about what you're involved in today. Like we've heard about your yeah. background and things. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did your there's, current initiative get started um, in terms of nectar health? Yeah, there's one thing that happened um, that I did not mention when I was in my first year at university um, is um, I was with my boyfriend um, and we were skiing and um, like my daughter would say, I was probably trying to impress him really bad idea. And anyway, <laughs> I did a, a jump in the snow park and with skis and I broke my femur in two sharp. Oh, no. um, I fell on my back and I bounced on my back three times and I was really like looking at the blue sky and praying and say, please, not that, please, not the, not the spine. Like I could feel my body bounce on it. And it turns out one of my femur is not well placed on my hip. Um, and so by amazing luck, um, the femur broke, which is the biggest bone. So there was a lot of something had to break. And, and this is what conceded. Wow. Um, and I lost conscious. I lost half of my blood. I had a skin in my forehead, so my face was all uh, black and full of blood. Um, and um, and so I got the helicopter came to get me. Um, the first helicopter, and then uh, the doctors were not 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 the best ones in that hospital. So I was moved to a second hospital. And they uh, they did not transfuse me um, because they had contaminated blood issues. This was two thousand and one, January two thousand and one. Um, and so, um, and so that led to a whole, um, sort of physical catastrophes or a physical, um, really hard to bounce back. And so it was my first year at university. I was back in a wheelchair at university, but my, my face was still very, um, black and purple from the injury. Um, and I was not transfused. So I was really limping. I gained 12 kilos. I, I wasn't sure. You know, I couldn't understand and read my body anymore. It was like I was in first gear. I was trying to go in second gear. And in the past, if it was hard to go from fourth to fifth, now it's just hard to go from first to second. Um, and so that was really, really uncool. And it led to many years of uh, limping, of um, my, yeah, my brain saying yes, my body saying no. And so when I was at McKinsey, I was sleeping quite a lot during weekends, which, you know, arguably some people would find normal given the hours we were pulling, but still I was sleeping a lot, you know, as much as I could to sort of recuperate. And so wow. that defined it, yeah. Because when I went to then study Mandarin, because um, I, I took a bit of a gap time when, um, uh, in between South Africa and the US. Um, and we went to study Mandarin and there uh, I went for a massage um, and um, it was seven euros. It was fabulous for 90 minutes. I was like, yay, it's so cool. Um, <laughs> and they did a session of cupping at the end. Uh, they said, oh, there's another treatment you can have. Uh, what would you like to have? Um, and I'm like, oh, I don't know. What's your bestseller? I can't read these Chinese characters. This is beyond my level of Mandarin. Um, and they said, oh, take this one, take this one. And I'm like, oh, it must be very successful. And I, it's not that it was successful. It's just that my body was craving that, but I had no idea. So they did the cupping. I don't know. Have you ever seen Stephen like cupping or have you done that? Mm, no, I haven't. Oh, it's like this, you know, do you know Phelps, like the swimmer? Like yep. what he, the one he has on his back. So I was like a ladybird but like my back was full and the bones wow. were black, black, black. And after that, I slept for three days and three nights, literally. Like I just slept. I didn't go to class or anything. Um, and um, and then I lost two kilo, kilos, like just suddenly. And I thought, oh, I feel different. I woke up and I felt different. I didn't know what I had. I didn't know what I they had done. I didn't know what I no longer had, but I could really feel something had shifted. Mm. So this was in 2007 when we had just learned, we had done a few months to learn Mandarin uh, before MBA. And so after MBA, my husband said, well, would you like to go back to, and because of the language and learning and being so curious about China, I, um, I said, I'd like to go back to China. And so we applied for Shanghai. They were really reluctant, but because we had sort of an open-minded background, they said, it's okay. And um, and there I started to take uh, 
traditional Chinese medicine classes on Saturdays, mm -hmm. which I thought were really average, to be honest. I was like, this is just so esoteric, like yin yang, uh, autumn and metal. And it's like, how does that even relate to health? Um, and I remember um, going one day to see my traditional Chinese doctor, just a teacher to see, hey, you know what, I'm just going to give this thing a go, like as a as a patient, because I have nothing. Mm -hmm. And she, again, she took me from A to B. I couldn't understand what was A, couldn't understand what was B. And in between were just a list of foods. And it transformed me. And this was in 2011. And my body was back to how it was when I was 17. And I was like, whoa, 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 what did she do? Right. Like she pulled the trick on me and I'm back to where I was before my ski accident. It sounds, yeah, almost like magic, huh? <laughs> what, yeah. What happened here? Yeah. So I yeah. went back to work to my very rational colleagues and I said, oh my God, I tried this thing, you know, uh, traditional Chinese medicine. It's amazing. I feel so different. They're like, oh, Diane, it's all placebo. And I'm like, well, then I stopped talking. I'm like, well, of course it's not. Now I can go in third, fourth, fifth gear. Um, and this was when I was pregnant. And there were many different signs afterwards of things that had massively changed. So to give you an example, I had really long and irregular cycles after that accident. And for the first time ever, they were back to normal. Mm. I thought, wow, like it has changed in a way that is very tangible. Like I can put its data, like, but I don't know, I, I don't understand fully what she's done. Mm. Wow. So you'd had real experiences of your health being impacted in a positive way through yeah. these traditional Chinese methodologies and cupping. And was, did it involve acupuncture or different things like that as well? Or was it um, diet? Yeah, just diet, like with her, just diet. So cupping the first time and just diet the second time. And so now you have to really imagine like by now I'm, I don't know, I'm 20, uh, I'm 30, 29. Uh, and I've traveled a lot and I speak a lot of languages and I have a bigger sense of the world. And I've always gone West when it came to medicine and always not understanding and limping quite a bit. And now I discover this world. Uh, that people say there's nothing inside, but yet it does these sort of miraculous. And I'm like, hold on, just hold on. What do you mean there's nothing inside? There's nothing inside because people want there's nothing inside. People people want to claim there's nothing inside. Or what do you mean? Because I, I I can't like my experience is very profound and I can't relate to uh, any form of placebo effect. Um, and so now we go back to the child with a lot of empathy for others when they have, you know, body issues. You know, always people come to me with their physical issues. I don't know, like I'm just a magnet for that. And <laughs> so I, I would take them, I would take and say, oh, I think I know someone who can help. And so I would sit in those consultations on weekends or, and um, she'd fix people one after the other, but with such a different logic, like mm. really profoundly different logic. And what was that logic? How did it, how was it different to? It was so upside down as it goes back to the language. It's so upside down. So I'll give you a few, a few examples. Um, if we talk about someone who has an irritable bowel syndrome, because of the language in, um, in Western culture, we're going to look at the bowel and we're going to analyze and overanalyze and look at microbiome inside the bowel and analyze all of that. But in traditional Chinese medicine, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not, the bowel is only on the receiving end of the upper stream food process and digestion. And so the, the bowel is irritated because food hasn't been processed by the liver system. It is not the bowel's fault. Then, for example, a second example would be, so for me, for me, what she did is um, I had, I told her, well, I don't have much. I'm, I'm, I'm doing really good. I only have a very dry skin. Uh, when I'm super stressed, I'm going to have sugar cravings, sugar cravings when I'm tired, um, when, you know, just before my menstruation massive, um, or I'm going to have a crash at four or five, or if I'm stressed, you know, I'm going to have a lot of sugar. And it's not that I don't have a will. I just, you know, it's like that. I can't help it. Um, if I'm very stressed, I'm going to lose my hair. In fact, from time to time right now, I lose it. 
which is really annoying because I'm young. Um, and um, what else? My uh, skin is very dry and my, my menstruation is profoundly irregular and my cycles are super long. And she said, every single one of these problems is the same. You lack physical blood volume. So you're supposed to have four to five liters in your body. And currently you have slightly less because you have slightly less, not all functions can be um, performed at the same time. And so right. if you eat these foods, your um, blood volume will re-increase and everything is going to come back in order. And I thought, wow, that sounds great. And I did that and it worked. And I'm like, oh, that's a funny, you know, if I think of my hair, losing my hair, I'm going to put stuff on my hair. That's what we do in the West. If I have dry legs, I'm going to put oil on my legs. That's what we do in the West, right? Um, if I have long cycles, I might be told, well, just get on a pill and then your cycles will regulate. Well, no, they're going to be fakely regulated. Um, and so here she was taking all of these symptoms and linking them to a single root cause that she would fix with a few foods and solve it. And I thought, wow, that's very powerful. I remember also going to her when um, our son um, was born and she said, oh, you look very tired. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm so exhausted. My son has acid reflux. So I, you know, can we just talk about me? Because I talk about my son all day long. And she's like, but wait, just stay on your son for a minute. Um, so he has acid reflux. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, she's like, I know what it is. But he used to not have it, right? Before you went back to Europe. And I'm like, no, he used to not have any acid reflux. She's like, well, your food changed. So therefore your milk became acid, your breast milk. So change mm. back your food and it's no longer be acid. And then your son's not going to have acid reflux. You don't need to give him an alkaline base medication on top of your breast milk. Your breast milk is perfect. He just needs to eat less of these raw foods and raw salads and raw tomatoes and raw yogurt like you've been doing in Europe. You just have to go back to a Chinese diet or a warm diet and then you'll be fine. And I thought, oh, oh. So he has acidity because my milk is acid. Well, that kind of makes sense. Oh, okay. Like, you know, and it's always very logical, but it follows a different logic. It's really interesting though. And I think it's actually really valuable to talk about this because I don't think we talk about it enough. And I think in the West, you're right. We treat the symptoms without thinking about the underlying causes and what mm -hmm. what's led to this manifestation or this thing yes. which is happening. But actually, let's go back and work out, oh, this has to do with this change in diet or, you know, change in sleep or whatever it is. There's usually something that is a causal link, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And it fascinated me how, you know, I would talk to my colleagues, they'd say it's placebo. Pharmaceutical companies looked into it and there is nothing valid inside, I was told. And yet I would silently take people with care to see that wonderful human being who had written five books and had those a thousand students. Um, and, uh, and she would nail one case after the other, but with a, a logic that defeated anything I had seen before. And so that made me more curious and that made me uh, double down on, on learning with her um, on these classes, but also starting to read on my own and sort of self-learn until we moved to New Zealand. And then when I had a question or one of my friends had a problem, I could no longer rely on her. And so I was really longing her help because I thought, hey, you know, I'd like just a quick fix. I have a quick question. So sometimes we do sessions on WeChat. Um, but, um, but then my friends would ask for help and I would tell my friends, oh, if do you have WeChat? They're like, oh, no. Like, oh, do you have WePay? No. Oh, okay. Then it's going to be a bit complicated. Um, and so I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll try to do my best to help you. And so outside of work, out of that genuine care and genuine passion um, and genuine, you know, of equity of, you know, people deserve to be at full potential. I, I started to help people. So that was the origin of, of, Nectar Health. Yeah. Yeah. So what is your main focus today? Because when the other thing, I didn't say it in the intro, but we spent a whole weekend together about a week mm -hmm. ago as part of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship um, Welcome Experience in Wellington. Um, and I know we were chatting then about headaches, right? And yeah. migraines. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to just talk us through what it yeah. is you're focusing on? Yeah. So I am focused on migraines. Um, 
And the reason for that is twofold. The first is I was really keen to do a food as medicine AI after I came across that experience. So I had seen in the world of business, in the world of health, in the world of IT, that we had a health issue, which was a language issue, but also a business issue of in traditional Chinese medicine, you only pay your doctor as long as you're healthy. For us, the more you're sick, the more you pay. So I could link now the business issue. There's a business fundamental flawed issue. The moment we introduced the GDP, the gross domestic product as a measure of society, coupled with health. So with pharmaceutical companies having a fiduciary duty to make more money for their shareholders, the only way for them to do that is to serve people more with more medications. Um, then I could understand that problem of business. I could understand the difference of language of health. And then I could see the potential in the uh, IT. And then with the sustainability angle, I could see how foods, because I was only only uh, asking for foods to my traditional Chinese doctor, things could be repaired. And so I started to conceptualize vaguely how I would love, and I started to draw in airplanes, like how I would love to envision a world in which you would have a food as medicine AI in your pocket and sort of um, just eat the right stuff, um, you know, to remove acne, remove anxiety, remove depression, um, remove um, stress, not being able to sleep well, et cetera. And so, so that's, that's one thing that happens is like start to that imagination. But I thought, how do I measure that? How do I find something that is not very dangerous um, yet doesn't require an external intervention to be measured? Um, and so I thought it was not possible. And so I let that idea down for seven years. So it's a long time. Um, but then I remember we um, lost our uncle from uh, a brain tumor, brain cancer, a glaucoma. Um, a glaucoma. Um, um, and um, no, what is it called? A, oh, the name, I can't remember the name. Um, uh, and anyway, it's a very strong, one of the strongest form of brain cancer. And, um, and one of my sisters said I had suffered from migraines and uh, I think I have a brain tumor as well. But I went to do three MRIs and each time the doctor said I didn't have a brain cancer. And I told her, no, I don't think you do, but it doesn't mean that you have nothing. It's just a manifestation of, it's a symptom. So let me discuss with Dr. Dang, ask you a bunch of questions and I'll help you out. And so I told her what to eat and within four months she didn't have those migraines anymore and so she could feel less anxiety from thinking I also have um, that um, brain cancer. Um, but the day everything changed is when my neighbor in New Zealand um, told me, oh, I've had a very confrontational conversations with my dad. Um, after seven years of migraines, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were having migraines. And she says, yeah, I've had them for seven years. Uh, my dad told me I need to get medicated for life, including having injections. And I told her, oh, that sounds very unreasonable. Like, you know, like you shouldn't do that. Like, what does it mean? You're 36, what, 50 years of medication? You have to be kidding me. No one does that. But it turns out everyone does. No one does that. Um, no, like, why would your dad tell you that anyway? And she tells me, well, he's a neurologist. I'm like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. So, well, then he must be right. And I'm like, no, hold on. This still doesn't feel right. I've helped my sister. Maybe I can help you too. And so I ask her a couple of questions. I do a bit of research and I'm like, well, just try to add these ingredients. And if it doesn't work, you still have, you know, 49.5 years to medicate. Just give me six months. And within four months, she no longer had migraines. And I thought, ah, oh, that's really bizarre. Why would her dad not tell her? Or unless the foods I gave her were very close to medical compounds. And this is just what they use in migraine medication compounds, just like I give my sister or I, I advise my sister to take. Um, and I started to do some research and my eyes were just like open, like two gigantic balloons. I made a few discoveries. Number one, um, you need a genetic predisposition to have migraines. So there's 40 genes lucky, they've been identified and it means that you can have migraines. Number two, while boys and girls have a 5% chance to have migraines, women have three, at puberty, it triples to quadruples. So women have 18% chance to have them. And I loved that fact because it meant that women were different to men. And I was persuaded by that because in TCM, when you talk, it's a very different systems. 
Um, number three, the only way you know a woman has migraines is you ask her. So it's a diagnosis by exclusion. So because she doesn't have a brain tumor, because she doesn't have X, Y, Z, therefore she has migraines. And you only know a medication works or not by asking her, do you still have a migraine? Yes or no? And I liked that too. Um, and, then, um, and then all of the medications were painkillers. They were not trying to understand why is this woman in pain? They would tackle the pain itself because it's called a migraine. So the migraine designates this debilitating pain in the brain that can, an attack can last for um, a couple of hours up to five, six, seven days. A woman can be in pain once a month to every single day of the month. Uh, they can have this pain for a couple of years before they find a solution if it happens. But, you know, for most of them, they might carry it, you know, um, for 40 years, 50 years. Uh, some of them, it may stop with menopause. Some of them, it may accelerate with menopause. And so that came a eureka moment of, oh, now I see how I can link my Western language with traditional Chinese medicine, you know, systems. Mm. That's amazing. It's a it's such a cool thing to make those connection points. And the really shocking thing is that somebody would have decades of medication to be looking forward to when actually a few changes to diet or other changes yeah. would clear this up. So yeah, yeah, I can see where this would be quite a satisfying job to be supporting yeah. people with that understanding. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Now it didn't come without um, without um, hurdle. Um, the first hurdle came from my family. Um, I think my parents, uh, and I think being in New Zealand helped a lot because I was far away from judgment. But, you know, mm -hmm. my parents were like, so you're going back to medical school, right? That's what you're saying. I'm like, no, no, I'm going to start an AI to remove women from migraines. And they were like, no, no. So it means you're going to you're going to go back to medical school. Yeah. And you're going to go and study. And then with the studies, you're going to practice as a legitimate doctor. And I'm like, no, it's not what I mean is I don't think it's in the books. I think that's the whole point. It's not in the books. It doesn't exist. Right. What I want to do, I want to create something new. And there was a lot of reluctance. Yeah. But that's called a charlatan. And I'm like, well, that's very offensive, but you know, I was like, you know what, like you haven't seen everything that I have seen. You haven't experienced everything that I have experienced. I, by now I speak, you know, fluent Mandarin, I can read and I can write it. And I understand what these beautiful, you know, thousands and thousands of years, just writing things manually led to that incredible wisdom that is um, very discredibilized because we are unable to really understand it. Um, and so I appreciated being far and being far helped me to just be focused, be focused on, on what I would qualify as, you know, a vocation, a passion. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's great. So how does it work today? If somebody is listening to this podcast and they say, well, actually I'm suffering from migraines, like what is it, the solution that you're offering or how would it work? So I'm trying to first understand why. And so I have developed a questionnaire that uh, asks 95 questions, it's about 130 data points of other things going on in the body. I'm trying to reconfigure, re-understand what is the root causes of the, the, the woman's migraine and what are all of the problems going on in her body. Um, and then based on that, the computer is gonna compute. Therefore, here are all of the foods that she needs to be eating in this order. Um, and then every day she's going to work with me and track. She's going to access an app that is specifically designed for her and only for her because there are not two same guts, not two same um, people to, um, to fix. And so, um, and so as she's going to track, her migraines are going to decrease in intensity and in frequency until, until for many of them, they disappear fully. Mm. So it's really combining sort of the traditional Chinese approach with, I guess, the the Western yeah. approaches as well, right? And then yeah. looking to how, how you can minimize these impacts of migraines. Yes, absolutely. And the Western approach is also important because, for example, um, we have now a database of 1,500 medications 
and all of their interactions with food. There's a lot of things that, for example, if you have left side migraines and if you've had a couple of surgeries, if you have uh, dark circles below the eyes and you tend to bru bruise easily, I'm going to think, mm, you know, probably you have something called blood stasis. It's really easy to remove. However, to remove it, you know, saffron or turmeric would be top choices. If you take anticoagulants or blood thinners, you can't have that. And so the the um, the sort of Western part of the algorithms will refrain from that. If you're pregnant, um, freshly pregnant, or you are trying to get pregnant, uh, the 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 system will also say, hey, no turmeric for that woman, because if she's freshly pregnant and doesn't know it, the turmeric is powerful enough to actually cause her a miscarriage. Um, and so all of the, um, the that intelligence has been really built around that. Um, and look, it's just so, so, so satisfying because women now, as you can guess and understand, once they have less and less migraines um, up until no more, they say, oh, um, people told me I had less weight. Uh, wow, I'm so less bloated. I have indeed one less size of jeans. Um, or they will say my skin's so much better. Or I have so much more hair. I have more energy. Uh, my partner commented on my energy. My dad said, finally, my girl, you're back. Your personality, you're bubbly again. You know, um, it's amazing, you know. Um, and so and so their depression is going to go away too. I feel sometimes meeting them for the first time you know, after a couple of weeks or months after we've worked together. And I, I tell them, I feel I'm getting to know your personality for the first time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so back to the childhood, I think there's an amazing desire for equitability. And so for providing this um, to, to, uh, to as many women as possible, because it's really, really, really unfair. We talk about women being away from the workforce and trying to attract them and blah, 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 blah. But if you have migraines, it's just, just really hard to stick with them. Your employer and your colleagues will not understand it. It's not that they that they don't um, have empathy. It's that they think headache. But a headache and a migraine have nothing to do with one another. One is just a, a, a quick pain. The other one is, a, you know, is something very debilitating that prevents you from doing anything else, even taking care of a child from time to time. Mm. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely something that if if we can help people, then it makes perfect sense. And and the thing that strikes me is that very often, I think, particularly in the West, we want the quick and easy solution. Like, yes. just give me the pill that's going to fix me. Yeah. But what you're talking about is actually getting to know your body, getting to know the importance of what it, it sounds basic, doesn't it? But what goes in is going to yeah. affect your body. and. Yeah. Too often, I mean, it, it's a simple example, but you look at the use of alcohol and yes. think about um, how in Western culture, it's like, you, yeah, we just have a drink, have two drinks, have four yeah. drinks. But actually, what is it you're drinking? Like if we fundamentally yeah. boiled it down and said, is this a good thing for our bodies to yeah. ingest? You would yeah. have to, if you logically speaking, you have to say, well, actually, it's a form of poison yeah. and it's doing things to our body, which are not good for them yeah and yet we ingest it you know and it's i guess it's reframing and re re coming back to something which is really basic which is yeah we are what we eat you know like what comes yeah. in is super impactful absolutely and so I'd, I'd love to echo what you say like in the most profound way right let's imagine we have a woman who has migraines um, before her menstruation or migraines on the top of the head, on her temple, right or left, it doesn't matter, or across her eyebrows. These are gonna be, for example, liver system related migraines. So you have the vagus nerve you need to imagine. So now if we go back to the Western science, you have the vagus nerve that goes from these main organs, which is, you know, and it's an asymmetrical nerve, it goes from the heart, from the stomach, from the liver, from um, the intestines, uh, up in the neck to the brain. And so when um, you have pain in those specific places, this is when there is an overload or a stagnation of the liver. Um, now, women are going to have it more just before their menstruation. They might have together with that like feeling of anger. Sometimes it's repressed anger. Sometimes it's expressed anger. It doesn't matter. They feel very angry inside. They may have eye discharge. Um, they... Um, they and, and they will feel that if they drink at a minimum wine, 
um, they will have these migraines increased. Um, and so the irony is that for those migraines, they're likely to take medication. But the role of the liver as a system is to detox. So if your liver is already loaded with alcohol or toxins that accumulates during your PMS, and you're going to add medication, you're going to add to the toxicity of the liver. And so over time, you're going to make that specific condition worse and worse. And so in the Western medicine, it is proven that what is called medication overuse or, or rebound, uh, medication overuse migraines or um, um, uh, rebound migraines are migraines that result from the use of medication against migraines. And so they have proven that, hey, we notice that the more the woman's going to need to medicate and take that, that, that pill, the more she's likely to have migraines. And that really is best explained exactly the way you've explained it as, you know, adding toxicity in the system, which then is going to increase the migraine. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And, and I think the more I learn about uh, our bodies and how they work, you know, just drinking the basic things like water, you know, yes. like, why do we, why do we commercialize sweetened drinks? And, you know, the, the, different energy drinks and things like if you look at what it actually is composed of it's it's just not it's not great for us and yet there's this whole industry and i do yeah. worry that we're creating a culture and you know look at i'll, I'll name it like a coca-cola or something and the amount that children drink and the fact that their teeth are rotting age five yeah. like it's not a good thing and yet we continue to yeah not talk about these things or at least you know it's just we're actually selling a form of uh something that is really bad for yeah. people and yet yeah. we're I mean, heightening it to you know yeah. the olympics are sponsored by these companies that want to sell more stuff which absolutely. is not good for us absolutely absolutely because when we in the west we look at for example a fizzy drink we look at the calories count we're going to look at the sugar and say, ah, oh, you know, not ideal, but, you know, so what? The problem is that it, it can destroy a system. So if you take a fizzy drink, a sweet, sweet and fizzy drink, it's going to destroy over time gastric juices. And the gastric juices are what able, what enable to split the food into, um, into what's, what's good. It needs to go within the blood stream and the, the muscles and the skin and what needs to come out. And when that triage is not done, then the bowel gets super irritated. And um, here people might think they have uh, irritable bowel syndrome. They actually have a leaky gut. And so it's just over time that misuse of this, um, this gastric juices and how they become broken by sort of modern lifestyle um, in the case of migraines is going to translate as forehead migraines. Because the, the woman who has migraines, she has that sort of superior genes that will launch a fire alarm and say, hey, we disagree with that, you know, what, what you're doing. Um, and so if she can listen to your, her body well, she can use migraines. Look, you need to be really good to be doing this, but I have a lot of women doing it now, using migraines as a tool for longevity. Um, but if you don't, you can really, um, you know, hit yourself in the wall before you notice you have, you know, mm. your leaky gut and sort of having runny stool for years. Um, and not uh, no longer understanding where it came from in the first place. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's been really helpful to talk with you. And I think what we'll do in the show notes, we'll put links to things. So mm -hmm. we can put a link to your Nectar Health website and we can put links to anything else that you think would yeah. be helpful for people. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that stuck, sticks out to me is I always love to know the connections between people's lives and then what they do today. And so even back in your childhood, hearing about your own experiences with health at a young age and then suffering that quite horrendous accident mm -hmm. and, you know, going through those painful experiences, I can see how that then has led to this point of learning about this particular type of medicine and then using it to have impact and, and support others. Um, so I really appreciate your time and the chance to talk with you because I think people can learn from each other's experiences. And um, in your case, it's it's really fascinating to learn more. So 
I'm going to definitely check out your website and see what else I can learn about some of these traditional ways of thinking from a Chinese medicine perspective. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for taking the time, uh, being so curious uh, yourself um, and uh, helping me share this uh, forward. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation. For me, there was a lot of things that stood out, and in particular, that emphasis on we are what we eat how important it is to be aware of what's going into our bodies and the impact it can have on so many aspects of our health and therefore on our life. If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog. And don't forget, in the show notes, there's a link to the website and a way that you can do an assessment of your health. Until next time!